Turn with me instead to Philippians. Every book in the Bible is written for a reason. Every New Testament letter is written with a clear purpose in mind. We write letters for a reason, and so do the apostles. Paul's letter to the Philippians is to a church fellowship. That is under pressure because of the clarity of their gospel convictions. And he writes to steady them, to strengthen them. It is an appropriate letter to turn to at any time. For the last Sunday, though, of a year, as we look back and as we look forward, there are many appropriate themes in this letter. For example, the theme of partnership. That's how Paul begins the letter in chapter 1, thanking God for the gospel partnership of the church in Philippi. I thank my God every time I remember you because of your partnership in the gospel. And we could well take that as our theme, partnership. For example, the partnership between our two churches, which is strong. Or, the second half of chapter 1, Paul speaks about how the gospel advances always through opposition and difficulties. That would be an appropriate theme. Or chapter 2, the picture of Jesus, the model of humility, the example of the kind of humble, servant-hearted attitude that fosters unity in a fellowship. The whole of a chapter in the middle of a letter about being humble and servant-hearted toward one another such that a fellowship will remain exactly that, a fellowship through a tough time, united and strong. That would be an appropriate theme. Or chapter 3. We referred to a couple of verses from chapter 3 in Eloise's baptism in the service. Great gospel verses, verses that take us to the very heart of the gospel. Paul writes, indeed, I consider everything a loss. How appropriate that is. I consider nothing else matters in the end other than knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and following him, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness from God that depends on faith. They're great verses that take us to the very heartbeat of the heart of the gospel. Or in chapter 3, Paul's exhortation not to look back, but to look forward and to press on very appropriate verses at the end of a year and at the end of this year. One thing I do, three, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal to the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Let those of us who are mature think 
this way. Paul says that a mature Christian attitude does not look back, does not look over one's shoulder, but looks forward to the future and ultimately to that everlasting future when the Lord Jesus will return. Great verses for the end of a year. So many themes in this letter that are applicable to the end of a year as we look back and look forward. Now, the passage I'd like us, though, to focus on in a little detail is chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. And here the Apostle Paul, the writer, is at his most practical and pastoral, and I trust what he says will be very helpful for us as churches and as families and as individuals. Chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, so do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, our prayer is simply this, that we would hear clearly from your word, that we would hear from the God of peace, and that as we do so, we would experience the peace of God. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Immediately the apostle says something that is not habitual for most of us. Rejoicing in the Lord. And yet it is a command and an encouragement to us to rejoice in the Lord and keep on doing so. It is a key note that is sounded throughout his letter. Strikingly, it is a key note that is sounded in all his letters. And in the whole New Testament. So chapter 1, for example, verses 4 and 5, Paul prays with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 17, Paul, speaking about the difficulty of his own circumstances, is still able to rejoice. Chapter 2, 17, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. And rejoice with you all, and you too should also rejoice with me. Given the context, the circumstances that Paul finds himself in, it is remarkable 
what he says. Chapter 3 in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then here in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, the encouragement to rejoice may seem a little strange given the context. Paul is writing to a church fellowship under pressure because of their gospel convictions. And yet he says to them, rejoice and keep on rejoicing. It may seem a little out of context in your life for Paul to say to you, rejoice. For many of us, it is not habitual for us to do so, nor often do our circumstances really cry out that there is much to rejoice in. But Paul says rejoice. One aspect of rejoicing is thanksgiving. Rejoice in what God has done for you. At the end of a year, at the end of this year, is it not right for us individually and as churches to rejoice in what God has done for us? To thank God. There's a verse tucked away at the end of the letter. Many of Paul's golden nuggets are found at the end of his letter as he just kind of rushes to write down everything he feels he needs to say. It's a verse at the end that's very applicable to this year gone by for us as churches. And remember, Paul's primary intention is to write to a church. Chapter 4, verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ. Can we not say that God has done exactly that? Every single need. But notice that Paul writes, not in the past tense, but looking to the future, my God will supply every need of yours, past, present, and now future. It is evident to us all that in the year ahead, there will be significant needs. What might they be? Well, buildings, as one, or and we all love this building, but it's not for sale. I've already tried. <laughs> I offered the faith mission a pound. <laughs> but it is a need, isn't it? On all our hearts. And we're well to say it. Or money to buy buildings. Here's a greater need than that. And this is the great need that Paul impresses on us in Philippians. Steadiness. Unity. My God will supply every need of yours. Survey the past year. Has he? Stand in the present and look ahead to the year to come. Will he rejoice in the Lord always? 
thank God for all that he has done for you. We would do well as churches to sit down as individuals or as elders or as churches and just list the things God has done. But it's not just as churches, but as individuals that Paul encourages us to keep on giving thanks to the Lord for what he has done for us. What has he done for us this year? Well, he's kept us going in the Christian life. We find ourselves still trusting in the Lord Jesus at the end of the year, as we did at the beginning. He has challenged us. He has provided for us. So we could go home and write down everything the Lord has done for us and give him thanks for it. But Paul's primary concern, though, is not to encourage us to give thanks or rejoice in what God has done for us. His primary concern is that we rejoice, and these three little words are the key, in the Lord. Rejoice in Jesus. Rejoice in the fact that you sit here this morning, if you are a Christian, forgiven. Entirely safe, whatever this world can throw at you. Entirely safe, were your life to come to an end. With an everlasting future in a new creation, for a hundred thousand times a thousand years, eye to eye with the Lord Jesus, your brother in the Lord. Rejoice in that fact. And of course, when you rejoice in the fact of the gospel and who you are in Christ, whatever path the Lord takes you on individually or as a church, you have that single-minded, humble confidence that to be in Christ is to be everlastingly safe. Rejoice in the Lord. It is unaffected by our circumstances. Now, I say that with caution. It is unaffected by our circumstances. It is, in fact, but it often does not feel like it. I, and I suspect Phil, as my brother minister, in fact, my minister, I suspect that, if we were honest, much of the past year hasn't found us rejoicing, humanly. But the fact is, we can all rejoice in what the Lord has done for us and in the Lord, whatever circumstances we face. But it's hard. And the apostle knows it's hard. But it's a command. It's a, an exhortation. And sometimes I think in the Christian life, we've, we need to be almost dragged on our knees to that point of making ourselves list and thank God for all the things 
he does for us. Let me encourage you to do that, to rejoice in the Lord always. Paul goes on, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Uh, All the different uh, Bibles have different translations. Some have reasonableness, some have gentleness, some have forbearance. One uh, contemporary translation has this, I think it's great, cut one another a bit of slack. (laughs) It's exactly what he means, I think, with uh, what he says. Now remember, Paul writes for a reason. These verses towards the end of the letter are not a random collection of pastoral statements. And often we take these verses and we stick them on tea towels. And they're out of their context. They're all here for a purpose. To this church family that is under pressure, rejoice in the Lord. It almost comes out with gritted teeth. Rejoice in the Lord. Count your blessings. There are many of them. Write them down. Pray with thanksgiving. Rejoice in the gospel, in it all. And then he says to this church family under pressure, cut one another a little bit of slack. Let your forbearance, your gentleness be evident to all. How relevant is that? Paul's big concern writing to the church in Philippi is their unity. Disunity is their greatest threat. The whole of the chapter 2 is on unity. Humble, servant-hearted attitude to one another. And that's Paul's theme again here. Let your reasonableness be evident to everyone. Cut one another a bit of slack. What it means is be gentle with one another. Bear with one another. Listen to one another. Really listen. When decisions need to be made, only honesty and listening allows you to make them well. Encourage people to speak their minds. Don't let tensions that are inevitable get the better of you. Be careful with one another. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then this great statement in verses 5b to 7, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Great verses. Notice Paul's logic. First, the Lord is at hand. He is not He is never far away. He is never inaccessible. He is here with us always, and he is here to help. The Lord is at hand. Paul's language at this end of the letter is very practical and real and normal. Cut each other a bit of slack. Remember that the Lord is just there. He's at hand. He's there to help. So, because he is there to help at hand, do not be anxious about anything, but talk to him in prayer. There will be many anxieties and worries that come your way as a church and as individuals. Sally and I last night uh, actually listed them. I'm more of a worrier than her. Her list was quite short. Mine was really long. 
that they will come. They'll come to us all, to some of us more than others, because our habitual tendency is half-emptiness. But they will come to us all, corporately, as churches, and as individuals. Many of us now will be bearing them. But the Lord is at hand. He is here to help, to turn to him in prayer. Let him know what is on your heart. What a great, practical, helpful encouragement this is. How hard it is to rejoice in the Lord often. How hard it is to turn to God and unburden to him our anxieties. If you're a parent of a child, often you know what's on their mind and heart. But what a difference it makes to you as a father or as a mother if your child shares with you what is on their heart. What a difference it makes. And so it is with the Lord. As churches, and remember Paul is writing to a church here, there will be lots of stuff to worry about over the next year, a lot of uncertainty. I was listing all the worries last night that I've had over the year, and then very gently Sally said to me, well, what's happened? The Lord is at hand. He answers. There will be lots of stuff to worry about, a lot of uncertainty. Whatever else we do, let's keep on praying to God, for he is there at hand to help us. Let's make it to our church prayer meetings this year above all others. What is true corporately is true personally. Who of us here will be free in 2015 of troubles and anxieties? You know, all these calendars you get, there's a big stand in I call it Save a Center. It's not Save a Center, is it? That's for us oldies. Cameron Toll. Big stand of calendars. This, that, and the other. I think there should be a worry calendar. A worry for every day. Talk to God, for He is at hand. What do we pray for? Everything. That means big things and it means little things. Nothing is too big, nothing is too small. Oftentimes, some of us think what we want to pray for is too small, so we don't pray for it. Although it paralyzes us with anxiety. And often anxieties and worries are an amalgam of lots of little things. Others of us think it's too big to pray for, so we don't ask or we don't ask directly. Or we, we caution or we caveat what we ask. Everything that concerns us and burden to the Lord in prayer. The ESV that I've read from has the phrase, in everything by prayer and supplication. Supplication means humbling, asking God to meet needs that are keenly felt. In other words, what is on your heart, what you really, really feel you need, ask God for it. At Chalmers, for the last six months, we have been asking God that he would give us a building along term uh, home. I remember when we, we wrote the, the, the prayers for the congregation, I had them all kind of caveated and nuanced and subtext and footnote and all the rest of it. And somebody just said, no, scrap all that and just say, please God, give us a building. and Give us the money to buy a building and put it into the heart of the person who owns the building not to own it anymore and sell it to us. 
Because you and I know, both of us as churches, that is exactly what it will take to get one. God will have to do it. So keep on praying that simple and direct prayer that is keenly felt. But there is one condition. We are to pray with thanksgiving. Why? Well, we are to pray with thanksgiving to God who hears and answers to the one who provides all that we have. But it's almost as if Paul is confident that as we ask for what is on our hearts and it is right to ask for what is on our hearts, we need to thank God in anticipation of the fact that he will provide it. Please, God, give us what we need and what is on our hearts and thank you in anticipation for the fact that you will answer that prayer. Just a little footnote, though. God's timing is his time and not ours. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The first answer to prayer is the peace of God. It's the very practical again. It's, it's a child unburdening their heart to their parents or to a friend or to their grandparents. What does the child immediately feel? Remember when you were a child, immediately it feels better because somebody knows who is capable of doing something about it. And we must never lose that childlike giving over of the anxiety to another as Christians to our Heavenly Father. The peace of God is knowing that God knows. The peace of God is conforming our will to his. The peace of God is knowing that when we cannot answer that prayer, we give it to one who alone is able to do that. And the contrast Paul intends us to see is between anxiety about anything and everything and the peace of God. Anxiety is replaced by peace. To move from a state of anxiety to a state of peace, the bridge is to pray. And Paul gives us a wonderful picture of the peace of God in answer to prayer. It surpasses all understanding. It is not humanly explicable. If I'm really honest, I, I see it more in Christians than I experience it. You see it in Christians when they're really sick at the end of their lives. The peace that surpasses all understanding. That classic situation in a hospital where everybody else is not talking about what is obvious. And the Christian cuts straight to the chase and says, please, God, end my life and take me home. Why do they say that? Because the peace of God is surrounding them. It is not humanly explicable. It is supernaturally given. When we listed all our worries last night over the past year, I said at one point, how on earth did we survive that? But actually your experience of it when you look back is the peace of God is there. It's just there. You see it in retrospect. You see it in retrospect and you believe it for the future. I think where we really struggle is believing it for the present. Until we see it in retrospect again. The peace of God is what? Paul says, 
It is something that guards your hearts and your minds. The peace of God is a state of mind and a state of heart. It is a state of mind because you and I know that the devil assaults our minds with anxieties and troubles. The peace of God invades the mind first. And then the heart, the heart in the Bible means the will, the life, what we do, how we live, how we act. The peace of God invades the mind and then controls what you do. I think it's legitimate to say that the peace of God stops us doing things that are wrong. It keeps us in the will of God. To know the peace of God is a state of mind and a state of heart to be guarded and guided by God in one's actions and to have the mind of Christ. So here's a great simple practical lesson from the apostle. Do not be anxious about anything, nor the rebuke, an acknowledgement that you will be, but the Lord is at hand. Talk to him, ask him, and let him supernaturally guard your actions and your thoughts and lead you to make wise decisions. Finally, brothers, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Notice that double edge again, think, practice, think, live. Gospel invades the mind, and then it invades the life. The list of virtues Paul commends is, I think, simply an encouragement to live a Christ-like life. Paul says, follow my example. That's encouraging to us that Paul can live like this. He is flesh and blood, sinful flesh and blood like you and I. But the prime example is Jesus Christ. So may these marks be evident in our church's lives, in our lives as individuals. Truthfulness. Just a lot of the world we have lived in as churches in the past two years is half-truthfulness, or spin, or rhetoric, or PR. Simple gospel truthfulness. Honorable, just, purity, beauty, what is commendable, what is excellent in behavior. What a visionary principle that is to carry into 2015, corporately and individually, to live Christ-like lives. Why? Because a christ like life, and it's down to each of us as individuals. We each contribute to a fellowship, Christ-likeness or not, to contribute a Christ-like life renders us useful to God. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, speaks about a pure vessel that is useful to the Master. A Christ-like life, if you or I contribute it to our fellowship, is a humble life. And a humble life fosters that 
most prized possession, which is unity. Think about these virtues and practice them. And the God of peace will be with you. That is how the apostle ends this section. It reminds me of what we say at the end of every service, the benediction or doxology or grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Or we often say, and the God of peace be with you. Whatever transpires in 2015, what fundamentally matters, surely, is that God is with us, that God is with you, that God is with us as churches. And the great thing about the Christian faith is that you can be certain that God will be with you. We can be certain that God will be with us. Certain, not hopeful, not 80-20, not 95-5%, certain that God will be with us if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord. Let me finish by turning back to these verses in chapter 3. Turn there with me. The verses we read before Eloise's baptism. Chapter 3 and verse 8. Wonderful verses. Paul writes, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Everything a loss. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And that is the heart of the gospel, not a righteousness of our own before God, but a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus. That is the heart of the gospel And that is how you know Jesus Christ as your Lord. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord, you know that God will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with us as churches. And with the God of peace with you, you have nothing to fear, nothing to be anxious about, but everything to hope for. Let's pray. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought in the day and the night, waking or sleeping, thy presence and my light. Our Father, we thank you for the very practical and helpful teaching of the Apostle Paul at the end of his letter, a letter written to a church under pressure, 
And we pray, Lord, that we would live depending on your grace and keep on expressing our thanksgiving to you. We pray that by your grace, we would cut one another slack, bear and forbear with one another. We pray, Lord, that as individuals and as churches, we would learn that vital lesson not to worry, not to hold these things ourselves, but to give them to you in prayer. May you fill our lives, minds and hearts with a peace of God which transcends all understanding. And will you make us individually by your grace and corporately as churches, godly communities, useful to our master, the Lord Jesus, and burn deep into our hearts and into our minds that because we know personally the God of peace through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his righteousness given to us, we know that the God of peace and the peace of God will be with us on into the coming year. Lord, if there is anyone here who is not yet a Christian, grant them by your grace and by the conviction of the Holy Spirit to see that the God of peace is to be found through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, who came to this earth and died to forgive us and was raised to give us life. May anyone who is not yet a Christian put their faith and trust in him and enter into this new year for the first time, safe and secure and standing in a righteousness that is not their own, but that is freely given through Jesus Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.